Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm delighted to share a presentation from the 2018 Integrating Clinical Research as a Care Option Conference on the topic of why are clinical trials not typically a care option? This session is led by Dr. Mary Abramson, VP of Global Clinical Operations at Biogen, and Jeff James, CEO of Wilmington Health. The 2019 Integrating Clinical Research into Clinical Care, otherwise known as CRACO, will take place April 29th and 30th at the Sheraton in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, thank you for coming to Clinical Research as a Care Option. And I am really interested in seeing if you will join our movement um, that uh, Val so graciously uh, introduced. Um, as she mentioned, there's a number of people in this room that are advising on what we need to focus on um, so that we're not just discussing this that we're actually doing something. We're doing something to help make this possible, to help move this forward. And there was an advisory committee that put this together that I briefly just want to mention who all they are. So Murray Abramson um, is part of the advisory board as well as Marcella uh, DeVita, um, Suzanne Nutter, uh, and then of course Jennifer, of course Jeff. Um, and myself, and we've really tried to work uh, really hard to think about wh who we need here, what kind of conversations we need to have, what information we need to share. Because if you look at what we've done over the last few years in clinical development, we've really, really focused on initiatives. And we've learned a lot about those initiatives. And we've learned a lot about um, what some of the problems are. And we've had things focused on uh, streamlining protocols. Uh, focused on, you know, how we should consent patients. How do we decrease the size of the consent? Focused on technology. How do we digitize? Uh, perhaps recruitment tactics, using social media, using different ways in order to do that. Uh, being able to provide different connected devices for patients and so forth. But none of that's changed. None of that's changed the cost of drug development. None of that's changed the pace in which we're bringing new medicines to market. Because what we keep doing is we keep trying to fix something that is already not delivering everything and all things that we need. And so we're really passionate about, okay, how can we think about this differently? How can we do this differently? What should we think about? And so as you look at patient centricity, uh, starting to come into clinical research, and you see the focus on patient-centered healthcare, that it gives hope, that gives an opportunity, that gives a possibility that we can possibly bring both of those together to add value for that patient, to provide productivity, to provide fulfillment to that physician, and really propose the opportunity and the possibility in order to bring all the options to the table for that patient, all of them, whether they're there for a second or whether they're the actually the option that is brought forward to that patient so that we can really, really provide that opportunity to have physicians know what's affordable or what is possible or what's available for their patient, but to have them actually participate in that journey, whether they end up being the principal investigator or end up being responsible for the care for that patient in clinical research, but at least they're engaged, they're involved. And we really need to think about, well, what are the barriers? What are the enables? What are the wins that we've had in this space? We've had wins. You'll hear about them um, in this uh, conference and in this discussion. We've also had some failures. You'll hear about those as well. 
But when we got together as a group and we said, what should we focus on? What do we need your help with? What do we want you to help us move forward with and take opportunities and stand for? And we focused on ethics. We feel that that's an area that really needs discussion. We really need to tackle that. We obviously want to focus on patients and patient advocates, and we want physicians to have a voice. They're very overworked, and this is what you want me to do more. What is that going to look like? Payers, how is this going to work? Hospital administration, leadership, academics, um, and technology. And we'd love everyone to be here, but more importantly, we'd love that you take the conversation out of this room, you take the actions out of this room, and we're able to expand the the people in the ecosystem that are involved in it. We don't have everyone in this room in order to do that, but we're hoping to make it a good start to help us um, move that forward. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Jeff. Great, thanks, Kathy. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here. I, I greatly appreciate it. Uh, we know it's a commitment to travel, and we know it's a commitment to be away from from your day job, so to speak. So, so thank you for being here. Kathy touched on a couple of points that I think are absolutely right. You know, one of, one of my passions in this area is how can we get the therapeutics and the new innovations through the process faster? The time that it takes is crippling and the cost that is incurred to develop these therapeutics is ridiculous. That we've, we think that this kind of movement can assist with that. Not to mention there's all sorts of um, there's countless numbers of patients that could just benefit from the process of clinical research and they're not being invited into it. We see this time after time in our own ACO and the benefits that are achieved in, in all aspects of the triple aim, all aspects of improving quality and outcomes for populations, reducing the cost of care, and truly engaging patients in, in their own uh, health care. So here's the thing, we've been talking about this now for four years or so, and the, uh, maybe five, and uh, Valerie mentioned it, we, the first time that we did this, there were a core of us that uh, spoke at the DFARM conference, which is a much larger conference than this, and someone from the audience asked me, you know, what, what are the challenges of this? And my answer at the time was similar to today. Where are my people here? Because there's, at this conference, there's almost, although there's a couple of very notable exceptions in the audience, there's almost no one from the, the, what I'll call the traditional healthcare delivery system here. Now here's the thing, last month I presented at a very large physician conference, one of our major conferences of the year, several thousand uh, physicians and physician leaderships. None of you were there. I may be exaggerating that a little bit, maybe a couple of you were there, but most of you were not. Most, of, most from this side of the industry were not there. And so to make this successful, you know, the challenge is how do we get these two sides of the industry to stop being sides of the industry and just become the industry? How do we incorporate this as a, in the continuum of care? And that's, that's, for those of us that are passionate about getting therapeutics through the system faster and cheaper, that's our challenge and that's what we're gonna be working on. With that, I think. Uh, so I have a challenge, I have a question. Okay, Kathy's got a are question. Are you guys open? I have your, I have graciously through Val can get your email addresses and send you a message at the end of this conference sometime in a couple of days. Can I send you an email and say, after this conference, what are you going to do to be part of this movement? And you can reply, I'm out or I'm going to do this. <laughs> okay, I got some nods. 
If you don't want to, let me know, okay? I've got a few. So that will be a challenge. So let's hear it. Let's listen. Let's learn. Let's figure out how we can make progress. Okay? Great. Thanks. Okay, so with that, we'll move into our uh, first discussion. And um, uh, Dr. Abramson, Murray Abramson, and I are going to conduct this first one. Uh, Murray is the Vice President of Global Clinical Operations with Biogen. Um, and I believe he was uh, facilitating the conference yesterday. And I caught him in mid-bite as well. <laughs> How are you doing? Good. Good to see you again. So we're going to uh, be chatting about some of the barriers, some of the challenges associated with bringing um, clinical research into the, the, the care option arena. Yes. Do you have any opening comments? Um, oh, I have a lot of opening comments. Most people <laughs> in this room are probably tired of hearing me speak, though, for the last two days. Um, I think it's a genuine opportunity, unfortunately, it's not used as much as it could be. And so what I'd like to talk about over the next few minutes, uh, not right now, but we can maybe have a dialogue, is um, why is it an opportunity for society, for the patient, for families? And then the other component to this is why isn't it being used? Why isn't it being appreciated? And what are some of the obstacles? And um, just kind of explore that better, because you know I, my conflicts of interest are very clear. I worked for Biogen. Before that, I worked for Merck. Before that, I was on faculty at uh, Duke Medical Center in North Carolina. Um, I'm, I'm a scientist and a physician, and so I view these sorts of things as good. But not everybody has that same view. Right. Uh, I would agree with that. And, and you know, if any of you have any comments related to some of the barriers, we'd, we'd love to hear those as well, because those are the things that we, we really need to challenge and see if we can break down. Uh, I can speak to it a little bit, and I've touched on it already. You know, one of the biggest things I see is the pharmacide sees it as the pharmacide, and the healthcare side, or the, what I call the physician side, sees it as the physician side. And they're still so siloed. Uh, one does not necessarily appreciate all of the aspects and challenges of the other. And we've got to figure out how to, how to solve for that. Uh, I mentioned a little bit of that in my opening comments. Um, you know, another one in, that I see is, and I'd really like to get Murray's thoughts on this, the, um, the, the feedback loop to non-investigators is sometimes non-existence which is a very large impediment to a primary care physician or even a specialist referring their patients into clinical trials as a true option for that patient because they feel the, the providers feel like they lose control. And the providers do not like to uh, lose control of their patient, be, have uncertainty as to what's going to happen to them, and furthermore, not even see what happens to them. Yeah, I mean, there, there are several different issues that you've touched on that each one can, we could dissect for a long time. Um, from the individual subject perspective, um, many people aren't well informed of their disease. Many people are not plugged into the 
right pathways to get their health care in the first place. There's a tremendous amount of health disparity in the United States today, in the world even greater. And so I, I think that that is one massive issue that has to be confronted somehow. Um, the second is the physician, uh, him or herself. You raised a couple points. They themselves aren't necessarily educated with this, within this arena. They have, uh, some are, some aren't. Uh, depending on where you are in the United States, some are connected, some are not. And so there's a fair bit of misinformation uh, from those two perspectives alone. And, and then it also depends upon um, the, the therapeutic need within a particular area. So the drug companies don't make it easy for themselves. Uh, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you talk about the drug companies are thinking about it as a drug company and the hospitals are thinking about it as a hospital and the patients are thinking about it. Well, they're not really thinking about it in large part because they've not been adequately educated and exposed. And even though they are, they, they also have a fair bit of paranoia for cultural reasons, for historic reasons and whatever. It's incredible because in, in a world, now I, I can speak for Biogen, in a world where there's neurodegenerative diseases, many of which are not currently, many of which do not have an active therapy at this point. So let's use Alzheimer's a, as a fine example. Um, Biogen has some studies in phase three in that space. There are millions upon millions of patients in the United States who could potentially qualify to go into that study, but they don't. And then the question is, why is that? Well, there, there are a number of things. We touched on this a couple days ago. One, the patient or the family may themselves not know the right diagnosis. If you do know the right diagnosis, the physician may not think that putting this individual in a clinical trial is the right thing to do, or the patient may even think that. Um, and that's assuming that they're acknowledgeable of the diagnosis and the availability of the treatment. Um, and then there's the logistics of where do they go to get their information. It's, I mean, clintrials.gov is there, but it's not the most user-friendly, as we all know, and uh, it really doesn't make the connections as well as it should or could. And then once you're there, it, it, this doesn't take away from the angst and the lack of knowledge about how one goes about doing this, or what are the consequences, what are the expectations, how do you get information shared to you, how do you work through the system. And even if you're fortunate enough to have all of that, you may not even be in a city or a town, most people are not close to a site uh, where they could even get their therapy, even if they were motivated to do so. So it, it does appear that there's a combination of uh, knowledge, the systems themselves are siloed, and unfortunately, the distribution of these trials are not distributed where, everybody, distributed where everybody happens to be. And so you have a situation which you really need to have some disruption in the marketplace because you'll both need to be able to connect. Um, you need to educate and get better health care. You have to educate the physicians, the patients. But then you have to be able to have a more effective distribution system so you can connect people with these centers in a, what I would call, a, a effective, compliant, but low-cost methodology. And we've heard over the last couple of days there's some possibilities, but that's, uh, it, it's, it, it's glum right now. Let me just say that, that my, this part of the conversation is fairly glum. I think that there are some good solutions and some good opportunities, and maybe we'll touch on that a little later. 
I think those comments are very fair. One of the things I'd like to kind of expand upon that Murray mentioned is this concept or this assumption that, um, in, in this instance, that, that the providers actually understand and know about the potential therapies that are available. I, I will tell you that, that if you're going to assume that, it is at your own peril because the likelihood that um, providers that are truly in the trenches which is the vast majority of physicians in the United States, they're not at large academic centers um, or very, very large systems. The providers in the trenches um, have so many things that they're dealing with that the idea of continually educating them on every trial that could potentially impact their patients know enough to have a meaningful conversation with the patient uh, to, to uh, steer them in a particular direction to find the locations and have that uh, readily available. I, I just don't think you can actually even legitimately make that assumption at all. And here's, here's the thing. In addition to that or related to that, right now while the industry is moving towards value, that's all you hear, right? But it's, but still, well over 90% of the reimbursement in the United States is fee-for-service. No one is helping the providers uh, that, that are not investigators have that conversation. No one is helping them understand and educating them on these trials or helping them trial, do it or helping them um, with the cost associated with having a really long, challenging conversation with the patient. Because we don't like to think about it, but in the fee-for-service world, uh, the providers are paid for their time. They have barely enough time to get all of the other things that are being required of them. And I actually had a conversation with a colleague last night about this very thing. What are the challenges of value? The challenges of value is we're asking doctors to, to take some of that precious time and constantly pounding on them to input it into the electronic medical record. Now if you want to layer on, when they only have 15 minutes with the patient to begin with, you want to layer on what could be a 30-minute conversation to educate the patient. Uh, so this issue of, of how, how are the providers going to be encouraged and educated to, so that we could actually legitimately make that assumption, I think is a valid one. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, and, and again, not all clinical trials are equal. I, I do think that oncology has done a better job in bringing people into the therapy uh, under many circumstances, not all circumstances. Uh, I think cardiology has become much more mainstream and some of the opportunities there have evolved. Uh, I can see within my own space in neurology um, that there are a lot of diseases that therapies just don't exist yet. And for some people who have ALS, people who have, uh, well, Alzheimer's, people who have frontal temporal dementia, people who have PSP, uh, people who have certain forms of Parkinson's disease, there is no therapy that is meaningful. And therefore, when that diagnosis is made, um, the next step should be for both patient, family, and physician to find the right avenue to get them the very best therapy that may exist out there. 
Um, and in many of those cases, it makes the difference between life and death. So we're not there yet, and it should not be as hard to enroll in these pa enroll these patients and work with these patients as it currently is. Um, but it is incredible that we're in 2018 and we're still kind of confronting this issue as if it were just uh, 2008 or 1978. Right, right, right. I, I agree with that. Um, one of the, the other challenges, although I think this is starting to get broken down a little bit, is uh, there's, there's no commitment from leadership on the physician side to uh, incorporating clinical research as a care option. And certainly, at, currently, with the chief financial officers, I touched on this a minute ago, there's, there's, there's no alignment whatsoever. And so until we can figure out ways of demonstrating the value of clinical research as a care option, we're going to be suboptimal at advancing the interest. Because the, if, it, if it doesn't come from top-down leadership, driving it through the organization, developing a culture that accepts it, um, it's probably going to be a, a very long road to hoe. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There has to be some motivating factor within the, the system to correct the inefficiencies that currently exist. Now, there is a certain amount of optimism in me that the technology that we've seen in many parts of the industry, different parts of the industry, have created efficiencies that were not foreseen just a few years ago. Yep. Um, and therefore, some of the upfront costs, some of the upfront investment that institutions had to do, and they preferably, preferably chose not to do it, will not be quite the same. And uh, it's, it's quite conceivable that we would be more effective in connecting patients to trials or educating physicians on where to send patients, uh, depending, again, on the disease and depending on a lot of the, the other factors within the healthcare system that they happen to, uh, to practice. I, I totally agree with that. I'm, I'm glad to hear you're optimistic because I'm very optimistic. I was worried with, when you mentioned that you're, you know, the outlook is glum. I'm like, uh-oh. But uh, I'll tell you what, I'm very optimistic. I see lots of opportunity here. We're starting from a fairly low bar. And um, I, I completely agree with Dr. Abramson that the, the technology is going to advance. I mean, there are so many positives out there that's going to help move this forward. Um, Certainly, the innovations that are going on in the, on the pharma side will help, but the innovations going on on the physician side or the hospital side, the health system side, are going to help dramatically. You know, a few years ago, just, just a few years ago, even five years ago, we could not meaningfully mine the electronic medical record. It wasn't until the second generation and meaningful use um, regulations came into play that we were able to, to really start to use those um, those tools as a source of new data to help facilitate um, matching patients to studies and even intelligently designing the studies themselves. You know, the first generation of electronic medical record uh, was more or less uh, a, an electronic dictation system um, and th things like artificial intelligence never existed. Now what we're seeing is is tremendous and the conversations that we're having around what is possible in, in the data itself are are really remarkable things that most of us would not even have imagined a decade ago so I, I do think that that's going to help quite a lot because now we can actually um, demonstrate 
the benefit of uh, participation in clinical trials. I agree also with Murray that there are certain therapeutic areas that I think are more likely to be adopted faster. Um, I, oncology, clearly, they've done a good job. I think some of the other main, more mainstream um, areas like diabetes, uh, CHF, COPD, I think those, because there's such a high cost associated with those in the healthcare system, um, and I think that there's also a lot of trials and a lot of, a lot of participation in those areas. Um, and as the stories get told about the successes, I think for those, that, I think that's where it's more likely to start than some of the more challenging ones that you mentioned. Yeah, well, I, I think it's going to be dependent upon where there's the greatest perceived need. I, I think that um, there are clinical trials out there that are either Me Too kind of phenomenon or they're just a little bit of addition improvements. Um, there could be a great deal of commercial opportunity, um, but there the motivation will be different than if you're dealing with diseases in which there are people who are dying quickly and require therapy. Uh, I, that's, that's kind of my world, you see, is that's what I see. Um, I, I think it's going to be iterative, but there's going to be some disruption in those areas where there's a strong buy-in from some population. Um, I think companies are starting to speak more about patient centricity. I think, as we talked about earlier in the past couple of days, some companies are really genuine about patient centricity. So you actually involve patients more effectively. You communicate with them. You're more effective in the communications and the options you give, that you train sites more effectively with that mindset. And then you're just going to have to um, use the technology to refine the availability of the disease across a large geographic path. And that's where the technology may become very valuable, is because we should have better insight into where people are. And then innovation, how do we connect the trials virtually or non-virtually to these individuals in different places? I'll give you an example. Um, spinal muscular atrophy is a good example. We got approval from that uh, a little over a year ago. It's a horrendous, fatal disease in, in the subsegment of kids, usually developing it at one or two years of age. And unfortunately, they tend to succumb to the disease within a year or two in the most severe form. Um, the ability to start screening patients at birth was a major breakthrough that was aided by the desire to make sure you connected the families to the therapy to the clinical trial as soon as possible. And that change in approach now allowed you to identify patients, even before it was approved, the drug was approved, to start exposing those individuals who are genetically at high risk for type 1 SMA to receive therapy through a clinical trial that we could then monitor and understand their, 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 their development and their adverse events and serious adverse events. And it was through that experiment that we were able to see that, indeed, these kids could go on and hit some milestones and not digress as the normal history of that disease would suggest. So that's a life, I mean, the, the difference between getting in that study and not getting into that study was life or death. And the ability to do that was to be creative, not just in a technological way, 
but through public policy and petitioning certain states, certain countries, to allow you to actually screen patients at birth for a treatment, for a disease, in which the treatment was not quite there yet. But those are the innovations that I also speak of. Uh, in the case of ALS, uh, you would have a similar drive, because in neurology, as you lose neurons, it's hard to regenerate them at this point. But if you catch it early enough, you may avoid some of the worst symptoms. So whether it be Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or ALS, there would be an idea that the sooner you can get people with these diseases uh, to be seen earlier, the faster you would be able to get them on a clinical trial and thereby potentially, hypothetically, avoid the terrible sequelae of the disease. Some of that is still uh, science fiction and some of it isn't. Um, and I think for us, we need to think about new ways and systems in order to kind of make those connections between doctors and patients. Some doctors are woefully uh, uninformed and they're within the systems that they may not find it interesting. Uh, we need patients to take it upon themselves to be educated and find the places where they can get that sort of support. Uh, I have a, a dear friend and, and relative of mine um, who has recently diagnosed with ALS. It took him five months to have that diagnosis made. Shouldn't have been that long. He was in a major medical area. I immediately contacted the people that I knew who specialize in ALS, and I said, you know, and I, and I gave advice to the, my friend and, and said, I think you need to go see this person because they have all the clinical trials that currently exist, and if they don't, they'll connect you to it. Which may or may not be successful. There's a lot of ifs here. Still, it's a, it's a horrendous disease, and people die within years, if not shorter. But that should not be the exception. That should be the norm. Right. Why is that the case? I'm troubled by it, because it shouldn't require somebody who's an MD who worked in the industry for a number of years to make that connection. We should be able to do that without that intervention on my part. And I think that's where the technology and the systems can, we don't have to do everything simultaneously, but there are some situations which are so egregious, I think we owe it to ourselves and to society to do something about it. I couldn't agree more with that. I, I've seen that uh, myself uh, a number of times in my own healthcare experience and with my family and friends. You know, one of the other barriers that that I see is, you know, uh, and Murray touched on it again, is the public policy as well as the regulations that govern the the industry or industries, the consenting processes you know, the, related to clinical trials are different than, say, the HIPAA consenting processes associated with the mainstream medicine. If, if there would be a, a public policy um, process by which those two types of things could be married up, all of the consenting processes that go along with the traditional healthcare system and some of the consenting, maybe, certainly not specific trials, but certainly some of the consenting processes that are associated with being associated or having your data used or even your remnant specimens used for clinical research, I think we could speed it up. As you mentioned, identifying the patients or 
or also evaluating therapeutics even after they're at market or after they're phase three um, through the use of remnant studies or remnant sampling um, could go could could advance it much quicker as well. I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I am full of stories because I get emails from people or phone calls from people to help in different circumstances, many of which aren't even related to what I do at all. But I'll, I'll give you two other examples which I think are indicative of different problems. Uh, the Alzheimer's patient or the spouse of the Alzheimer's patient writes an email, uh, happens to write to one of the executives of my company saying that the husband would be willing to sell their house and all their worldly possessions if he could get his wife into a clinical trial. Think about that. He's writing to a stranger, offering everything he owns to save the life and the mind of his wife. You know, they're desperate people out there. You shouldn't have to go through that expense or anguish to, to be able to be connected up to something that I consider is a human right, is healthcare. The outcome for that story, you know, uh, what we, we can do from a compliant perspective is I got the email from the executive and I had someone in our field office re recommend them to go to some clinical trial sites, not specific just to Biogen, but at least make the connection with people who could help educate them and figure out what to do. On the other side, I have a friend whose mother uh, just over the past year or so has developed also dementia. The husband is a very prominent researcher and an academician, high level, uh, within high ranking individual within a university system. And uh, they're not seeking any treatment or any therapy because they didn't think they wanted to go down that pathway. Mm. And, and again, this is a very educated couple who are connected to a healthcare system, and they made this decision because they didn't really think it was worth their effort. It, it's really quite mind-boggling, the disparity in the different varieties of ideas. It's somehow the hospital doesn't make it easier, the doctor and the system doesn't make it easier, pharma doesn't make it easier. Um, and of course, the, the level of scientific understanding and appreciation in America today or in the world today is, doesn't make it easier. But there has to be something. If I can call a taxi using my iPhone in two minutes, I surely should be able to save the life of somebody or at least get them on the right pathway to get them to see somebody who could give them the information and support them and get them connected. It, it, it's very naive of me to say, I recognize, but it just, it, it just, it, it goes beyond belief. Um, so we're about out of time. Uh, there's a, a few other things. I've got a few soapbox items, but hopefully I'll get Oh, I've been on my soapbox. I'll be quiet now. Sorry. Um, no, no, no. You, I love your soapbox. I truly do. Um, but I, I'll probably have an opportunity later today to have, have a few of mine out there. I would like to take a couple of minutes, though, and uh, see if you guys have any questions or some of your own stories about the barriers to clinical research as a care option. Hi, uh, Kat Hall, Synovian. Um, so it, it really strikes me, um, not as a professional, but as, as a mother, how decentralized our medical system is. Um, as Murray knows, my children all have Tourette's, and I have been on a 12-year hunt for solutions that actually address 
the struggles that my children go through. And for my most severely affected child, um, he has a team of over a dozen physicians at this point. And it's really only because of uh, a post-traumatic event where he had a tumor growing in his sinuses that we stumbled upon a specialist that finally has him on a path to um, actually work towards mitigating all of his symptoms. And that has been a long search. And no other physicians, including Tourette's specialty clinics, have ever clued us in to these possibilities. And I think that that plays into what we struggle with with clinical research, is how do you educate the physicians on treatments that are already out there, right. let alone all the new ones? Right. So if you can comment on that. Uh, my most clear comment is I absolutely agree. I mean, it is a very big challenge, and, it, and the, the systems are not set up to, to facilitate those com conversations or those educational endeavors, and there's so many of them out there to be had. Um, it's, it's a really big challenge. The physicians aren't compensated for it. They have so many things to keep up with. They're required to do more and more and more with less and less and less every day. And unless we do something dramatically different, that this problem is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Unfortunately, that, that's my uh, unoptimistic side, which you only see very rarely. Hi, Murray. Hi, hello. Um, I wanted to share with you um, a story of a site we are working with in New, New Jersey, which I think could be, become a model for many other sites and institutions. So it's a large um, community practice. They have about 15,000 patients. And when you walk in, you have the reception. On the left side, you have the standard medical practice. And on the right side, you have the research practice. And what the physicians do is they talk with their patients what options they have, medication, standard medication, and when they literally have reached the end of the rope, they tell them, well, but you could walk over to the right side, and this is what we are offering you there, clinical, uh, clinical research as a treatment, treatment option. And that seems to work. And the question is, uh, why is it working in these community practices, why is this model not more widespread? Why is it not more common? Uh, I have a, a few ideas, but please, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm curious to know who manages the clinic and who came up with that model, because it sounds like there's probably some history or some motivation behind that, It's my guess. Okay. You are right on, right on target. As a guy who manages the research, uh, research side, he used to, be, used to be for many, many years at Merck. So he knows clinical research inside and out. And he has, with his business partners, set up that model. Yeah. So, so it takes a little bit of knowledge and willingness. But for most physicians, for most of those who practice uh, in the world today, that's not necessarily a knowledge set they have. And with the limitations of time and commitments that, that people have, it's just not something that can be invested. Uh, it, it would be a, I'd, be, I'd be very interested in hearing more about the model maybe afterwards. And, uh, but I think that's the, it's the competition of time and commitments of all the other things that people are under and prioritizing things that seem to be societally the right thing to do.
Yeah. And I have some examples as well, but I think we'll have time later in the day to express some, some more content on your questions or comments. Hey, uh, Brett Shamish from Pulse Point. Um, I'm going to share my experience at a prior company that I think had a very uh, analogous problem, uh, strikingly so. So I worked for a mental health referral company. I headed up product there, so I was in five major markets hanging out with PCPs, trying to understand why they didn't refer out to mental health. Uh, we provided a platform that made it very easy, made it a great experience for the patient, and actually provided that feedback loop that was missing. And our findings were really just in four categories, and I think you'll see the similarities. Um, First and foremost, does the PCP recognize that mental health is a care option, is a care path here, that back pain might be coming from depression, generalized anxiety? Number two, um, if they do recognize that, do they want to have that lengthy conversation with the patient that's complex, that they may not be able to answer questions about, and that they don't get reimbursed for, all right, from a time perspective? Number three, if they do, does their CMO support this care path? Is there pressure from the top down in the system? to actually make that referral out. And then fourth is, uh, Jeff, what you spoke about is the feedback loop. Once they release that patient, who is their customer, do they get that feedback back about, um, about the patient and about their care? And so we solved some of that. Um, I think what I wanted to share is the success we had was, I think what you, Dr. Ibsen, talked about was focusing on the areas where those four were working and then expanding that out with physician leadership KOLs in the, in the space. We found that tended to be, forgive me, tended to be younger female doctors who were um, recognized that there was a need, who referred out, who saw, checked the patient feedback, and then what we did was we took those pockets of super users and sort of expanded them out and shared their experiences to the primary care community outside of that, and so that seemed to be the thing that worked the most, and I wonder if there's an opportunity to do that in this space as well. Certainly. Mental health is always a component of it, and one of the other challenging areas. I mean, um, you know, for many, many years, it's been the third rail. You just don't touch it because it's so challenging and difficult, um, and it needs to be incorporated in absolutely every single conversation that we have because it's such a driver of um, outcomes and costs, um, and you throw in some of the other social economic, um, you know, plays in there, and, and it's. Uh, it's a challenging issue. Um, absolutely, those kinds of things need to be incorporated into the, the process. It's same kind of challenges. Um, okay, we, we, we could probably take one more, and then we, we've really got to get it over to Kathy so she could talk about ethics. Okay. My name is Trisha Chavis. I'm with Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. And um, I wanted to just bring up things that I've learned from um, being in advocacy, patient advocacy. Um, not only with Women Heart, but throughout my career. Um, and I would say that the challenges that um, I was hearing, Murray, that you were mentioning, um, a, a couple of things. Um, eligibility criteria, um, uh, it can be a discouraging, even when patients are um, really tuned in, um, even if they are actually trying to get into trials or their physicians are tuned in to getting into trials, um, they can get discouraged over time and then will actually tune out of actually trying to get into trials after a while because they will be like, I never actually qualify, I'm over this, I've, I've done this many, many times. 
this is discouraging and I'm, I'm done going through this process, it's just over. The other thing is the cost for diagnosis or the process of being diagnosed with the right thing that helps them qualify for a trial can be also very um, discouraging. Um, eligibility from the standpoint of also like, um, as you mentioned with your ALS patient or something like that, if you know they've had it for six months, they are no longer eligible because it's, they've had it too long or something like that. So those kinds of things can be barriers that is specifically challenging or women, if they're too old, um, often will you know, age out of a trial. So thinking about eligibility is something that maybe we can broaden our scope for eligibility for these trials. Um, maybe is also something to think about as well as costs for them to qualify. The genetic testing in particular, um, insurance companies often don't cover the genetic test, so they have to have that genetic test before they get it. So just thinking of those things. Thank you. Yep. Uh, I, I think that's a very good point. In fact, I jotted it down. I think eligibility, I've seen that myself as being a re really large barrier. Um, so with that, we're going to have to um, close this. Murray, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's, it's great to see you again. It's and a really, pleasure. Really appreciate you being here. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. The 2019 Integrating Clinical Research into Clinical Care, otherwise known as CRACO, will take place April 29th and 30th at the Sheraton in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org and again, theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.